0: Alright, well why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Uh, the passages are listed there on your outline. Uh, we are in uh, the book of John today. i uh, look at a couple of different places here in a few minutes. Uh, so you can go ahead and turn there. We'll also show them on the screen for you. Um, you know, the 1990s have been referred to by a good number of people as a holiday from history. How many of you have heard that phrase about the 1990s? A holiday? Okay. Well, I promise you, it's true. (laughs) A holiday from history. Uh, Some people view it that way because, you know, looking back, the 1990s were a time of relative stability. Uh, The Soviet Union had broken up. The Berlin Wall had fallen. uh, The Cold War was was over. Uh, The stock market was fairly strong. Republicans and Democrats did something that they don't usually do, and that is they worked together and came up with a balanced budget. And uh, so it was a good time. Uh, Others call it a holiday from history because they say that there were a lot of things that were happening in the world that needed attention, and we were sort of kicking the can down the road on those things. So, like, we took a holiday that we really shouldn't have taken. There was work to do, and instead, we were on holiday. Whatever the case, it's true that looking back, the 1990s looked pretty good. You know, I remember, I specifically remember feeling in the 1990s like our national security was virtually infallible. Uh, I mean, I took great comfort in knowing that we lived in such a powerful uh, nation, The economy did pretty well, uh, both as a nation and individually. Of course, this isn't true in every single case, but I think it's uh, widely true that many of us felt as though we were in control of our lives. And then on September 11th, 2001, the United States had its holiday violently brought to an end. Uh, Our feeling of security, our feeling of invincibility was shattered. Uh, We found out that... Even the most powerful nation on earth, perhaps the most powerful nation that's ever existed in human history, was not entirely in control. And over the past 12 years, we've seen increasing evidence of people feeling insecure, feeling like circumstances are beyond their control, are out of their control. You know, we're told by many of the experts that it can no longer be assumed that kids will have a better quality of life than their parents. That's just been assumed for uh, for decades, but we're told that's no longer true. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime, in the last few years, mainstream people, not quacks, but mainstream people, uh, really talk uh, seriously that, that this is a serious threat uh, that our nation could face complete economic collapse, that our economic trajectory is simply uh, unsustainable. You know, during much of the 2000s, we were told, or whatever you call the 2000s, I think that's what you call it, right? Someone said you call it the aughts. Anybody heard that? No? Okay, we'll go with the 2000s. So we were told it wasn't a matter of if, but when there would be another terrorist attack uh, on our soil. You know, the thought of preparing for emergencies and disasters is something that Americans have largely ignored uh, since the Cold War and the whole bomb shelter uh, craze. If any of you are old enough to have been part of the bomb shelter craze, um, yeah, we just really haven't given thoughts, uh, thought to those kind of things. But now mainstream folks uh, speak of preparing for emergencies, building 72-hour kits, uh, building up for 30 days worth of food, and then some take it way beyond that and and just get really crazy with their preparations. You know, some are so concerned about trying to maintain their security and controlling their future that they go to incredible lengths to prepare. How many of you ever have ever watched National Geographic's uh, channel's Doomsday Preppers? Anybody watch that? Yeah, quite a few of you have watched that. I saw one that was really fascinating. The guy had... Uh, purchased, uh, and he was wealthy, he was a millionaire. So again, somebody, I guess millionaires can be quacks, but he didn't seem like a quack. Uh, He had uh, bought a 10-story deep former nuclear silo. And he was building luxury condominiums (laughs) to survive the apocalypse in his 10-story deep uh, nuclear silo. So these people will go to unbelievable lengths in an attempt to try to secure their future. We have, as human beings, a great desire, a compelling desire for security. And, you know, the the desire for security causes us to do a lot of things. One of the things that I believe it's caused us to do is uh, accept unprecedented intrusions into our lives. uh, that past generations would have just recoiled in horror at the thought of what intrusions there are into our privacy. Uh, So much of what we do is driven by a desire for security. Some very basic decisions we make, if you really get underneath of them, they're driven by a desire for security. Our educational choices uh, are often driven by a desire for security. What is going to provide the best future, the most secure future, uh, for my family uh, and myself? Our healthy eating habits, to the extent they exist are driven by a desire to live longer, a desire for security and control. We feel like we control the le- we can control the length of our lives uh, if we eat better. And I could go on and on, but the point is that we highly value security. We highly value being in control of our future. And with so much about our present time feeling as though it is uh, out of our control and spinning out of control... It feels to me like we we work increasingly hard, uh, that that, that we're really straining and striving to try to maintain some semblance of control, as much control as we possibly can uh, over our lives. Now, nothing that I say next should be taken as being antagonistic toward planning and preparing and doing the best that a person can to provide for their security and doing the best you can to control your environment. I mean, the Bible is full of examples of people preparing uh, the whole story of Joseph is an example of of strategic planning and preparing for a, a time of famine that was coming. And, and, and Joseph was wise enough and he planned enough that he helped not only himself and his family, but his nation and surrounding nations survive a seven-year famine. So... Nothing that I'm going to say is antagonistic toward planning. The scriptures do not say anything that would discourage us from using our brains and saying to the extent I can, I'm going to provide for myself and provide for my security. But that being said, friends, security and control, as much as we value them, as much as we work to maintain them, to a very great extent, security and control are an illusion. They're an illusion. We think we can guarantee safety, but we really can't. We think that we can control our environment. We, we think that we can plan and strategize well enough uh, to control our future, but we can't. You can be the very best employee that your company has. You can make yourself more valuable to that company than than any other employee in the place. And yet, the CEO makes some bad decisions. The company falls on hard times. Because of something completely outside of your realm of responsibility, customers are lost. And in a worst-case scenario, the company folds. (laughs) You did everything you could. Everything that was within your power, in your role in the company, you did it but you couldn't guarantee your security. You controlled what you could, but you couldn't control everything. That doomsday prepper meticulously plans for the future, stores up food, buys a remote hideout, plans against all types of uh, possible calamities. And then as he is... Pulling out of his remote hideout to head back to the city and to his home, the sun hits the windshield just the wrong way, and he pulls out in front of a car that's coming 70 miles an hour. And though he prepared, and though he planned, and though he controlled as much as possible about his life, this one error, and not entirely his fault, and life is over. Security and control are never guaranteed. We can do what we can, but it is not within our power to guarantee our future security. And we are never able to possess complete control over the events and circumstances of our lives. The illusion that we can control our futures, the illusion that we can guarantee our security, these things often cause us to pull back from the things that God calls us to do. In this series that we're wrapping up today about uh, taking God-inspired risk, you know, we've been in this for several weeks now, and, and we've talked about this topic for several weeks now, but often we are so fond of security, we are so fond of control, that we are simply unwilling to take risk even when it is God himself who is directing us to take them, even when it's God who is calling us to step out and take a risk for his purposes. And so today, as we conclude this series, we're going to look at the life of Peter. We're going to see that a desire for security caused Peter to abandon Christ. And then we're going to see how Christ restored Peter— And how Christ required Peter to abandon his commitment to security and control and to completely entrust himself to God's will, even though God's will required Peter to completely let loose of security, to completely let loose of control of his life. So let's first consider how it is that Peter's desire for security caused him to abandon Christ. How Peter chose security uh, over Christ. Now many of you are familiar with the story of Peter. You know that he was uh, someone with great passion. He was very emotional. Uh, He was quick to step to the forefront and make great and bold proclamations. In John 13, 31 through 36, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to be uh, going away, that he wasn't going to be with them much longer, and that they weren't going to be able to go uh, where he was going, but that at a later time they would be able to come to where he was. Of course, he was speaking about everything that was about to happen, his crucifixion, his resurrection, uh, his ascension into heaven. And in response to all of this, Peter said in John 13, 37... Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. A bold promise. I will give my life for you. Peter's telling Jesus that he's so committed to him that there is no price he won't pay to follow him. Even if it means dying, he is willing to do it for Jesus. Of course, Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew Peter. And so Jesus responded to Peter's bold promise this way. He said, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Of course, Peter was wrong and Jesus was right. John 18, 15 through 18 and 25 through 27 Record for us that Peter did just as Jesus said he would. Peter disowned Jesus. Let's look at John eighteen fifteen through 18. Again, it should be on the screen or if you want to follow along in your Bible. Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. "'You're not one of his disciples, are you?' the girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, "'I am not.'" It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So Jesus had been arrested. He was being brought in to be tried. It wouldn't be too long until he was going to uh, be crucified. And so this is the context of what we're reading about Peter. So picking up at verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So Peter denied knowing the Lord three times. Now, Peter's denial is recorded in all of the Gospels. And Matthew and Mark give us uh, this detail. They say that on the third time, Peter became so frustrated at this line of questioning that he began to call down curses on himself and said, I don't know the man. So Peter made a bold promise, but he couldn't live up to the promise. He broke his promise to Jesus. He disowned Jesus. Now, I think that we tend to be fairly quick to minimize Peter's betrayal. I think many of us in our own minds, we start to rationalize how, well, you know, he was in a really tight spot and... And, you know, it's sort of understandable that he might, in this particular situation, not be able to make good on the promise that he had made. But, friends, the severity of Peter's denial of Christ really can't be underestimated. This is a big deal. Listen to what Jesus himself taught in Luke twelve eight through 10. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men... The Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Make no mistake about it, Peter's denial of the Lord is not a little oops. It's not a a little mistake. It's not an understandable and excusable response to a difficult situation. What Peter did is really as bad as it gets, denying even knowing the Lord. This is the big leagues of failure. This is the big leagues of sin. So why did Peter do it? Why did he deny knowing the Lord? What were his motivations? I think he was motivated by a desire for security and control. I mean, you have to understand he had just seen Jesus arrested by Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And though he had initially been prepared to fight, if you know the story, you know that reference to cutting off an ear is Peter got his sword out and had chopped the ear off of one of the soldiers, an ear which, by the way, Jesus put back on the soldier. Uh, But he had been ready to fight. But the gravity of the situation was now hitting him with its full force. The situation was spinning out of control. He already had not been able to keep Jesus from being arrested. What would it mean to acknowledge that he was a disciple of Jesus? Would he also be arrested? If he admitted knowing Jesus, he couldn't control what the reaction would be. I believe he was trying to ensure his security. He was trying to maintain control of his situation. And at that moment, identifying with Jesus could mean a loss of control and potentially the loss of security. And he was unwilling to risk these things. He was unwilling to risk the loss of control. He was unwilling to place himself in a situation where his security might be compromised. In this moment, Peter valued security and control above Jesus, above faithfulness to Jesus. And we're guilty of this very thing. We do this all the time. God nudges us to obey him, step out, invite someone to church. But we're afraid of what they'll think. You don't have to raise your hands, but what stops you from inviting people to church? It is fear. What will they think? How will they respond? We'll lose control of their perception of us. They'll think we're a religious zealot. And so we say, no, in this case, I will act like I don't know Jesus. We don't think of it that way. That's pretty much what we're doing. God tells us to refuse an unethical directive from our boss. But we're afraid of how to affect our job, afraid he may decide he doesn't need us, afraid of the ramifications. If I disobey, I may find myself without income. I'll lose control of my financial security. And so we say, you know, in this one case, I know what God is telling me. I know what Jesus wants from me. But in this one case, I have to act like Jesus isn't my Lord. So I have to do whatever I need to to maintain security and control rather than being obedient to this risky thing that God calls me to do. God calls us to stop being a religious consumer and to start serving. But we've watched those people who serve and we know they get entangled with the lives of all the other people in the church and it gets messy Sometimes they sort of quarrel with one another. And it just looks like a bunch of difficulty to me. And so we decide that this me and Jesus existence is better. That we're happier doing our own thing. And because we don't want to give up control of our time, because we don't want to be inconvenienced, because we don't want to open ourselves up to the relational entanglements and the potential conflict that happens any time you're within the vicinity of a human being. I thought that was funny. Um, You're just thinking of all your conflicts, aren't you? And it's not that funny. Uh, So we choose to act like Jesus isn't Lord. Just in this situation, we'll act like He's not Lord. God calls us to finally let loose of our money, to begin to give. But we don't see how we're going to make it if we give. And so we say, God, I I do know you're telling me to do this, but I just don't think I'll have enough. I don't think I'm going to be secure enough. I'm going to lose too much control if I give. And so in this case, I have to act like you're not Lord. God calls us to reach out to someone of a different race or of a different uh, socioeconomic situation, and we're just too uncomfortable to do it. Uh, We prefer continuing to accommodate our prejudices. We don't know if they'll accept us. We prefer not to be stretched outside of our comfort zone. And so we just say, I'm sorry, but in this case, Uh, Jesus, I have to act like I don't really know you. I I have to act like you're not really Lord. And so like Peter, we often choose security and control over Jesus. Now Luke tells us that when Peter denied Christ the third time, that Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that? Just imagine. You, you, You remember, many of you, how your parents could just look at you And like your heart would just melt. I do not have that control over my own children. Uh, I wish I did. Uh, But I know my dad could just look at me. At least my assessment of it is he could just look at me and I was done. I mean, I I would just, whatever I was doing stopped. Oh, how I wish I had that power. (laughs) Jesus looked at Peter. You can just imagine what that look must have been like. When he did, Peter remembered what Jesus said in verse 62 of Luke 22. says that Peter, quote, went outside and wept bitterly. The weight of his failure fell heavy on him. He deeply regretted what he had done, deeply regretted denying Jesus, deeply regretted that he had chosen security and control over Jesus. So understanding that Peter disowned Christ out of a desire for security and control, understanding that he was deeply regretful of his sinful situation, and sinful decision, we are ready now to see Jesus graciously restore Peter to both a relationship with him and service to him. But we're also ready to see that in restoring Peter, Jesus requires Peter to give up what he previously had clung so tightly to, security and control. It's recorded for us in John 21, 15 through 22. Why don't you follow along as I read? When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus replied, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now pay special attention from this point forward. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you dressed yourself. You went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now this exchange is instructive for all of us when we've failed God. When we've disowned Jesus. Jesus wants to know, do you love me? It's a question that he's going to ask every single person who considers following him, do you love me? I think it is so fascinating to know that Peter failed Jesus miserably, yet he really did love Jesus. You now, Jesus asked him if he loved him three times, perhaps giving him the chance to affirm his love the same number of times that he had denied knowing Jesus. And we're told that after twice affirming his love, when Jesus asked the third time, Peter was hurt, and he appealed to Jesus in an interesting way. He said, you know all things. You know that I love you. And friends, this is true. Jesus knows all things. He knows who loves him, and he knows who doesn't. This is comforting, and this is frightening, depending on the condition of our own hearts. For Peter, it was comforting. Because even though he had failed God horribly, he really did love Jesus, and Jesus knew it. King David is another example of this. failed God miserably, yet he really did love God. You can fail and truly love God. Or you can fail God, and it can be an indicator that you don't truly love him. Here's a frightening thing. We can look like we love him. Everybody around us can think we love him, but we not really love him. And he knows. He knows which it is. So I just encourage you today to examine your heart. Do you love Jesus? Do you really love him? And don't play any games with answering the question because he knows. No matter what you say, he knows. So examine honestly. Don't try to fool him into thinking you love him. He can't be fooled. He knows. So examine your heart. As Peter is affirming his love for Jesus, Jesus each time is instructing him to serve those who belong to Jesus, his lambs, his sheep, which mean his people. The same is true for us. If we're going to follow Jesus, he wants to know that we love him and he wants to know that we are willing to be committed to and serve his people, all of those folks who belong to Jesus. There is no me and Jesus approach to being a follower of Jesus. There is only a me and Jesus and everybody else who belongs to Jesus approach to following Jesus. But here's what I really want to emphasize today. After Peter has disowned Jesus in the interest of security and control, as Jesus is lovingly restoring and reinstating Peter... He also makes it very clear to Peter that there's going to be a lot that's going to be required of him. And what Jesus requires of Peter is a willingness to do what he had previously been unwilling to do. Jesus requires Peter to completely give up control and security. Look look again at verse 18. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And of course, verse 19 explains what this means. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Jesus is telling Peter, Your future is going to include the loss of security and control. Your future is going to include paying the ultimate price for being connected to me. Your future is going to include being killed because you're connected to me. Okay, so here's the guy who just said he doesn't know Jesus because he's afraid. Now Jesus says, I welcome you back. Here's what you have to understand. You're going to be killed because you know me. Because you're connected to me. And he goes on and makes the point that in Peter losing his security, Peter losing control, in paying the ultimate price in being killed, through being killed, Peter would glorify God. Wow. Put that on your refrigerator. And we know that Peter was martyred. He was he was crucified, and church tradition says that because he considered himself unworthy to be crucified in the same manner that Christ was, that he was crucified hanging upside down on a cross. So Jesus required that Peter let loose of the things he had gripped so tightly, security and control. He required Peter to, to completely surrender to accept that the future was not his to control. Now, this troubled Peter. Seems to me it troubled him at least. He looks at another of Jesus' disciples and he says, what about him? You've heard that phrase, misery loves company? I think that's what's going on here. What about him? I think, I'm suspicious that Peter was hoping to hear that John was going to die in the same way. I mean, if you got to go, it's, it's better to go with a friend than all by yourself. And uh, so I, I think he was was hoping that John was going to uh, die the same way, that John was going to share the same future. And Jesus' response reveals the depth of devotion that Jesus requires of his followers. It reveals how completely we have to be willing to surrender control and security. He answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return What is it to you? You must follow me. You have to do what I've laid out for you to do. That's all you need to be concerned about, Peter. Wow, that's demanding. No whining, Peter. No being concerned for fairness, Peter. I mean, I think about Peter and I think, man, I'm the one who first proclaimed you the Christ. Can't a brother get a break? Instead, Jesus says, what's it to you? What happens to John? You just have to do what I've laid out for you to do. Your only concern is what I want from you. What I want from John isn't your concern. You must be willing to give without consideration of what I require of anyone else. Every single one of us, if he is our Lord, we have to give what he asks without consideration for what he asks of anybody else can't compare and contrast. We just have to obey. What is it to you? Whatever I want, whatever I require, you must give, you must follow me. And this is the demand that Jesus places on everyone who chooses to identify with him. It's the demand he places on everyone who chooses to receive his offer of salvation. Follow me. And over and over again in Scripture, he makes it clear what that means. For Peter, it meant yielding control of his life, surrendering his grip on security. Another time, Jesus was teaching about what it meant to follow him, and he said this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then he says, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. So you fight for control, fight for security, you're going to lose life, Jesus says. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. Again and again throughout the New Testament, we discover that the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to die. It's an invitation to die. Most of the time it's figurative. We're called to die to sin, called to die to pride, called to allow selfish ambition to die in us, but sometimes it's literal. It was for Peter. It was for Jim Elliot, who at the age of 29 years old gave his life for the cause of Christ while trying to reach the Wadani people of Ecuador with the gospel. If you've ever seen the movie The End of the Spear, you're... Familiar with the story of Jim Elliot? If you've never seen that movie, I would highly recommend it. The call to follow Jesus is a call to yield control of your life to him. To let go of your death grip on security and control and to say, Jesus, however you want to be glorified through my life, I will glorify you that way. Whatever it costs, that's what I'll give. We have convinced ourselves as Christians in 2013 that we can say yes to salvation and say no to death. But we can't. The invitation to salvation is an invitation to follow Jesus. The invitation to salvation is an invitation to make him Lord of our lives. You can't pull them apart You get salvation, you get Jesus as your Lord. That's the package. And our attitude has to be whatever it costs to follow you, that's what I'll give. Peter recovered from his disowning Christ. He did yield control of Jesus. He was willing to surrender security for the glory of God. And that's what God expects of each and every one of us. Now, I don't know who first coined this term. But several years ago, I heard a pastor that I respect immensely describe the call of God on us to loosen our grip on security and control and give ourselves in reckless abandon to the cause of Christ uh, this way. And it's something that's always stuck with me. He said that we should view our lives as loose change in God's pocket. Loose change in God's pocket. Now, what do you do with loose change? You spend it very liberally I mean you do things with change that you wouldn't do with, with anything else with uh, bills with loose change you're quick to reach in your pocket and give a little money to a child you're quick to drop loose change in the share jar at the convenience store some of you are some of you grip that loose change very tightly <laughs> If you find enough loose change in your car, you might decide to, you know, drive through the fast food joint and get a drink that if you'd had to break a $5 bill or a $10 bill, you would have said, "Ah, eh, I'll do without the drink. I love finding loose change for that purpose. <laughs> totally crazy thing we do with loose change. We, we throw good money into fountains. I mean, that's how... That's how casual we are with loose change. Throw the money into a fountain and make a wish. There's a surefire way to get what you want out of life. (laughs) The point is that loose change gets spent indiscriminately. Now, I think it's important that we understand this correctly. I do not believe for a minute that God spends our lives carelessly or casually. I don't believe that for a minute. That's not what this is intended to communicate. The point that this is uh, intended to make is what our attitude should be toward God's use of our lives. God loves us so much that he very carefully and lovingly calls us And decides how we're going to glorify him. Even if his assignment for us is a difficult one, he does it with great care, he does it with great love, he does it with our best interest in mind. But the attitude that we are to have toward God is God, you can do with me whatever you want. It does not matter. If what you have for me is harder than what you have for the next person. It does not matter if what you have for me requires the loss of some type of security, financial or otherwise. It doesn't matter if you want me to serve in a difficult place. It doesn't even matter if you ultimately call me to give my life for you. My life is yours. Do with it what you will. Our attitude toward God should be I'm loose change in your pocket. Spend me however you want to spend me. We're not in control of our future. God is. And whatever he wants from us should be okay with us. So here's the truth we can plan and prepare and fight to maintain control of our lives, to try to provide for our security. And we should do what we can. But here's the truth. The only security that any of us really have is Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Jesus taught that the only way life could really be saved, the only security that can really be had, is through giving ourselves fully to his love and care. And when we recognize that the only real security we have is in Christ himself, it frees us up to obey whatever he requires of us. It frees us up. When I know that my security is really only in Christ, I can disobey that unethical directive from my boss, knowing that when I lose life, I save it. When I really believe that Christ himself is my only security, I am free to let let go of control of my money. I'm free to begin to give to the work of God knowing that my financial future is not in my control. It's, It's God's deal. When I know that my security is really only in Christ, I can obey God's... Command, God's call on my life to start serving in ministry. Even though I realize I'm going to be giving up some control. Even though I realize that I'm going to put my heart on the line to be hurt by people. I can do it. Because I realize that as I lose my life, I'm saving it. When I know that my security is really only in Christ. I can risk inviting my neighbor to church. Because I know that even if I'm ostracized in the neighborhood. True life is being gained. When I know that my security is really only in Christ, I can commit myself to going to the mission field. I can commit myself to planting a church. I can commit myself to starting a Bible study at my job. I can commit myself to starting a Bible study at my school because I'm not afraid anymore. I know that whatever I lose, it's really just securing the life that is really life. When I know my security is only in Christ, I can do whatever he calls me to do. I am free to obey because I know that obedience to Christ is the only sure way to secure the life that really matters. To secure the life that is really life. Over the past several weeks, we've seen the examples of several people in the Bible who have been called to take God-inspired risk. And they've done it by faith. We've seen people who have been reluctant step up and do things that seemed impossible because God empowered them. We've seen a few who were eager and still stepped up and did something that seemed impossible because God empowered them. Whether reluctant or eager, we have seen time and time again that it was confidence in the sovereignty of God, confidence in the power of God, and being persuaded that God had specifically called them to their assignment that helped these people take these risks. And today we've seen that this is the deal with following Jesus. He places a demand on our lives. You've got to be willing to loosen your grip on security and control. You must give him complete control of your future, no matter how he chooses to glorify himself through you. And we found that we can find the freedom to obey when we believe what is really true, that the only security we have is Jesus himself. Jim Elliot, a few years before giving his life for the cause of Christ, entered this thought into his journal. I've mentioned this many times before, but it's just a wonderful thought. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. My prayer for all of us as we conclude this series today is that we would trust in the sovereignty of God enough, that we would spend enough time in his presence, that we would believe that our only security is Jesus enough, that we would be willing to loosen our grip on control and security. And accept the assignments that God is calling each of us to individually, even if those assignments are risky. Why don't you stand?